And I would ask you to turn, uh, to open your Bibles to John chapter 14, verses 1, uh, 1 through 6 is our text for tonight. It is a privilege to consider God's Word together with you tonight. I've titled this message, The Untroubled Heart. The Untroubled Heart. Is that an impossible thing? An untroubled heart, especially these days, you could call them heart-troubling times. You know, it seems like there's no shortage of things that we need to be fearful of. Crime, the economy, politics, race relations, disease, cultural decay. Everywhere we look, it seems that we're being surrounded by things clamoring for our fearful attention. Just take a look at the webpage for something as anodyne as the weather. You know, you, you'll find reasons we should be afraid. It's the worst wildfire ever, the worst hurricane in history, the worst snowstorm in a century. Our TV shows are, show violence, crime is rampant, our political institutions are shot through the corruption. The worst this, the worst that, the worst. Now, there is a place for proper fear, or we can call it cause for concern. For example, if this room started filling with smoke, we'd be wise to head for the exits. We'd make sure that the building is evacuated. We'd clear out the building. We'd not, and not just the places where we see smoke, we'd make sure that the, nobody was left inside. Does the gospel inform believers' reactions to the world's calls for fearfulness? Does the gospel inform inform believers' reactions to the world's calls to fearfulness. Now, not all fear is prompted by external circumstances. Some fear is internally generated. You might know someone who's prone to worry. I know I am. I know someone who's me. You know, given a particular situation, my imagination takes it and runs with it and says, well, I need to worry about this because if I don't, then something bad will happen and then that will happen and then bad things will happen, so I have to worry. You know, again, there is a place for ascertaining and mitigating risk. You put your seatbelts on, don't you? But I'm talking about the type of worry. I'm talking about the type of fear that can cause one to lose hope, to even perhaps doubt God's sovereignty. How can he be in control? Is he really in control of all things? To doubt his goodness to us. Or to doubt his fatherly care for you as a child for whom his son died. So how should one's faith inform reaction to one's own internal calls to fearfulness? And that's one of the questions uh, that we'll consider tonight as we study this passage, John 14, 1 through 6. And I'll read it in a moment. It is a very, very familiar passage, and it's part of what's called the upper room discourse, uh, that uh, Christ's conversation with his disciples during that final Passover, the Last Supper, as he enters his final few hours before facing the cross. And we'll cover uh, these six verses in three sections if you're taking notes. The first is Christ's comfort, verse 1, Christ's comfort. The second section is Christ's teaching, verses 2 to 4 is Christ's teaching. And finally, verses 5 and 6 is Christ's admonition. Three sections, Christ's comfort, Christ's teaching, 
and Christ's admonition. So Christ's comfort. It was the Passover. And as you know, the Passover is a celebration commemorating God's freeing Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that observance was instituted by God and had been passed down for generations. It would have been a joyous occasion, and in those times in particular, marked with maybe anticipation. Because remembering how God overthrew Egypt meant one couldn't help but wonder when it was that God would overthrow the occupying Romans. But that dinner probably been pretty tense so far. You know, there was that awkward moment when everybody got there and they were standing around on their stinky feet wondering where that slacker servant was who was going to wash them when Jesus Christ himself took the basin and the towel and washed the disciples' feet. Then Peter's refusal, you're not washing my feet, and Christ's rebuke. And then Jesus had been talking about leaving over the last few days, but nobody knew exactly where it was he was planning to go. And furthermore, he was talking about being betrayed. By who? By, by one of our own? And then, then Jesus dispatched Judas to go run some errand, and then he, to top it off, Jesus told Peter that Peter would be denying him. How could that be? Yeah, it probably wasn't your typical Passover and the disciples were worried. Because Jesus had been talking about going away for some time, but now it seemed like he was getting ready to leave at any minute. Where was he going? When would he be back? What would happen to them while he was gone? The disciples were worried. And it's right about this point that Jesus speaks these words, which we'll read now. John 14, starting at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God bless the reading of his word. Now, Christ tells his disciples to let their hearts not be troubled. But he doesn't discount that they had very real cause for concern. You know, they must have been absolutely bewildered by the events uh, of the last few hours. You know, just days ago, people were celebrating their arrival into the city. But he's been talking about going away, and they weren't quite sure why, let alone why they couldn't go along. You know, they knew that the leaders had it in for them. Maybe he was going to vanish and leave them holding the bag. They must have felt something was wrong, even if they couldn't put their finger on it. So, yeah, their hearts were troubled. But Christ tells them, he, tells, he encourages them to direct their hearts to not be troubled. Now, the word troubled there expects just pretty much what you'd think it would mean. It means to be bothered, upset, disturbed, agitated. That word troubled is rendered terrified in Matthew when we see the disciples in a boat uh, on the stormy sea. So, the events of the last few days, along with the conversations of the last few minutes, left the disciples troubled. Surely, you must know what that feels like. 
Now, many of our own fears are foisted upon us by others, and many of our own fears, many of our fears are self-manufactured. But the disciples were responding in fear, worry, anxiety to the things that Christ himself was telling them. And so it's hard to fault the disciples for their anxiety. But Jesus tells them that despite the reasons they might have for troubled hearts, to rather direct their hearts to not be troubled, but instead to trust in him. Now, have you ever found yourself wondering about, what, worrying about something, thinking, why, I just can't help it. I just can't help it. Well, maybe we can help it after all. You know, Jesus is telling his disciples to direct their hearts toward a particular option. Now, throughout Scripture, we are, give, we are given many examples. We're encouraged to. We're given examples of directing our hearts toward particular objectives, aren't we? You know, Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. We are to direct our hearts to enthusiastic praise for God. Or Psalm 42.5 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Or Psalm 56.3 says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? We're called in Scripture to direct our hearts toward particular objectives, and so Christ tells them not to be troubled. So coupled with this encouragement to his disciples, he cheers them on as it were in their trust in him. He knows their faith in God. He knows their faith in him as the Son of God. You know, they've walked with him for several years. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him heal the sick. Just days before this, they saw Lazarus walking out of his grave at Christ's command. They knew who, they knew who Jesus was. And Christ is encouraging them to continue in that trust, even if what, life, even if what he's calling them, them to is beyond their understanding. Now, just as Christ calls his disciples to courage, so he calls us as his disciples to courage as well. And oftentimes, in spite of what might be otherwise reasons for discouragement, it's an act of the will, but it's powered by God's grace to direct our hearts this way. And you've ever felt like, well, I don't know how to not let my heart be troubled. Have you ever talked to God about that? You know, have you ever, uh, you, for example, Lord, in this circumstance, would you grow my trust in you? Would you help me to not have a troubled heart? That's a prayer that God would be, he would love to answer. So how do we do this? You know, how do we not, how do I let our hearts not be troubled? I think pragmatically, from a pragmatic perspective, we could just deal with external alarms. That is, alarms, fearfulness prompted by popular culture or mainstream media, we can deal with them this way. If, if calls for alarm comes from popular culture or mainstream media, odds are those calls are fraudulent and we can just dismiss them outright because one of the things our fallen world understands is that if someone is fearful, they're vulnerable. And if our, in our fallen world, there are all too many people willing to prey upon the vulnerable. And you don't have to look hard for examples. And this isn't new. Proverbs warns the wise about falling in with those who would shed innocent blood and describes the punishment that will ultimately befall them. 
What about internal alarms? You know, pragmatically, we could just tell ourselves, don't worry, be happy. Or we can count on our fingers the number of times our worst-case scenarios actually play out, that sort of thing. But dealing with worry is more than learning a set of mental hacks. You'll remember that in the disciples' case, they were upset about things that Christ had been telling them, you know, things that, they, that were true even if they didn't comprehend. What do you do with that? You know, what do you do when you're worried about something that's true? You know, Christ reminds his disciples of his own trustworthiness. Spend time thinking about Christ's trustworthiness. You know, has Jesus Christ ever given you reason to distrust him? Is there a step of obedience or maybe a step of faith that the Lord is calling you to? You know, are you uh, perhaps worried about what might come if you, uh, of your taking that step of obedience, that step of faith? You know, if you want an example of somebody in the Bible doing that, consider Mark 9 where Christ is dealing with that man whose son was possessed. You know, you think that father's heart was troubled? And, he, and that man tells Christ, I believe, help my unbelief. You may God grant us grace to trust him with a faith like that. Our hearts can be comforted as we confidently trust in Christ. It's Christ's comfort. Our next section is Christ's teaching. And in this next section, verses 2 to 4, Christ gives his disciples further reason for confident trust with his teaching about God the Father, as well as describing a little bit about the place where Christ is going. You know, again, very, very familiar verses, but I want to spend a few minutes really thinking through them. Christ describes his father's house. He tells his disciples he's going to prepare a place for them and that Christ will be bringing his disciples to him. His father's house has many rooms, and other translations of this passage would say many mansions or perhaps many dwelling places. So we're going to pause and think for a few minutes about things that have many rooms. The Biltmore Estate is a mansion on 8,000 acres up in Asheville, North Carolina. And the, uh, the Biltmore House was commissioned by George Vanderbilt and completed in 1895. It's the largest private residence in the country with 250 rooms, 35 bedrooms, and 42 bathrooms. And the mansion itself is open, up, uh, is open to the public for tours, and it makes for a great day trip. So if you've ever been to the Biltmore House, you've seen a large house with many rooms. But none of those rooms are yours. And bad things will happen to you if you think otherwise. You know, big house, many rooms, wealthy owner. Several years ago, I had a birthday coming up, and it was a birthday that had a zero in it. And my wife planned a surprise for me. It was a cruise to the Bahamas. We had never been on a cruise before, and it was really an experience. One of the things on the ship was it was called something like the Midnight Pizza Buffet, all the pizza you can eat. And I'll start at the very beginning, just, I'm going to just take one piece right now. But by the end of the week, it's like, I'll just be taking that entire pie here. Um, you know, it's, you know, and we had a cabin on that ship. And they created the illusion that it was our room. You know, here's the key to your room. Or the steward is here to straighten up your room. Or shall I deliver those five pizzas to your room? But it wasn't, in fact, my room. 
And if I got it into my head that it was my room, then they would disabuse me of that notion the moment we got back to port and the cruise is over. Because if I tried to stay in the room, they'd probably send a couple of burly sailors to toss me overboard or make me walk the plank or something. And moments after we were out of the ship, the moments after we were off the ship, they were busy getting ready for the next occupant. It was as if we were never there. It was never actually our room. You know, it costs about a billion dollars to build a cruise ship. Big boat, many rooms, wealthy owner. So we know that having a big house with many rooms means that you've got to be fabulously wealthy. Our God is sovereign creator. And by sovereign, we mean that God has supreme and absolute authority. And as creator, there is nothing that is outside his ownership and control. As hard as it might be to imagine owning the Biltmore Estate or or imagining owning a cruise ship, God's wealth is simply too big to measure. He owns it all. In Psalm 50, the psalmist writes, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. And one reason that the heavens declare the glory of God is that they know who their owner is. All things are his. Now, in addition to the Father's house having many rooms, Jesus is going to prepare a place for his disciples. Now, what do you think that preparation is? Now, one aspect of that preparation is that Christ's sacrifice had yet to be made. And with that, without that sacrifice, God's wrath poured on him instead of on us. Without that, there could never be that place prepared for us. God's holiness and justice means that the only place suitable for us would be the same place prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, something that the Biltmore and the cruise ship have in common is that you have to pay to access the room. You know, whether I could wander around the Biltmore house is dependent on whether I paid the entry fee. And what kind of cabin I had on this cruise ship was dependent on how much I paid for the cruise. And if you think about it, every room that you have ever occupied needed somebody to pay for it. Access to Jesus' house, his father's house, that was paid for too. Without Christ having paid for that access, the only place we'd have prepared for us is that place prepared for the devil and his angels, described in Matthew twenty-five forty-one. So sacrifice had to be made. Payment had to be made. And that's the only way that we could have access to that room. The only way that there could be a place prepared for us with Christ. And Jesus said that even though he's going, he'll be back to bring his disciples so that they could be there, so that they could be with him together forever. Do you see the gospel there? The gospel is in that sentence. I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also we deserve none of this but because god is preparing a place for for us while to quote colossians 2:13 and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh god made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross 
while we who were dead, Christ set our charges aside. Because our sins are paid for by Christ's death on the cross, that place is prepared. And Christ will take us to, to, be with, to himself to be with him forever. Now, have you ever wondered, what's taken the preparation so long? You know, after all, God created the universe in six days and he rested on the seventh. And I know myself, whenever I undertake a project around the house, if YouTube video says it's going to be just an hour or two, I need to block off the entire day because I don't know what I'm doing. And a large part of that day is going to be running to or from the hardware store, getting things that I needed but didn't have. But have you ever wondered, what if those preparations are already completed? You know, Revelation describes the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in Revelation 16, 9, the angel is telling John to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Maybe what's going on in time is we're just, he, that they're just waiting for all the guests to arrive. The disciples have found it almost unthinkable that Christ would be leaving them by death. But he had been hinted, hinting strongly at that fact. And he tells them that if they think about it, they'll understand what Christ is talking about, that he's referring not to temporal but, but to uh, eternal realities. That the house of which he speaks is heaven itself. And because he will pay for that access, his disciples can look forward to heaven with him too. And the point is that the sovereignty of God means that his plan to save his people simply cannot be thwarted. And there's a passage in Romans that you'll, uh, that you'll hear nicknamed the golden chain of salvation. It's in Romans 8 verses 29 and 30, but I'll start a verse early and end a verse late so you can get a bit of context. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What, shall, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's plan cannot be thwarted. Christ is preparing a place for his disciples, and the destiny of the believer is eternity with him. That's cause for confident trust in him. Now, these final two verses is Christ's admonition. And Christ is describing um, eternal realities, and it still seems that Thomas is thinking temporally, and he says, I, he says basically, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, we have to cut Thomas a little bit of slack. Uh, if you look through John, you will be amazed at the number of times Jesus is, is explaining eternal things, but his hearers have no idea what he means. In John 2, Jesus referred to the temple being built in three days. Leaders had no idea what he meant. John, uh, John 3, he tells Nicodemus he must be boarded again. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. Next chapter, John 4, he tells his disciples that he has meat to eat that they don't know about. And they had no idea what he means. They figured, well, somebody must have brought him a sandwich. But he was talking about doing God's will. In short, Christ is telling the disciples that he is getting ready to leave earth by death. 
But this temporary death is absolutely necessary to secure the disciples' eternal destiny with him. Christ is telling the disciples he is getting ready to leave the earth by death, but this temporary death is absolutely necessary to secure the disciples' eternal destiny with him. So Thomas says, we don't know the way. And Christ says, yes, you do. I am the way. And he underscores that with his, with his claim that he is the truth and he is the life. And this is one of the most succinct and profound of our Lord's statements about himself. It's, uh, it's one of the famous seven I am's in the book of John. He says he is the way. Christ is telling his disciples that the only way they can be reunited with uh, is that if they're in the same place, but there's this problem of sin that has to be dealt with. Christ's death on the cross will make atonement for that sin. And the only way one can avail themselves of that atonement is through repentance of sin. And, and believe that the, sacrifices, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for that debt of sin. Satan offers all sorts of counterfeit ways. They all lead like that wide gate and easy way mentioned in Matthew 7. By the way, that word way in Matthew 7 is the same word that, John, uh, that Jesus uses here uh, in John. That wide gate easy way leads to destruction, which is death, and an eternity apart from God in hell. And if you think about it, Satan even offered Jesus counterfeit ways in the, in the temptation described in Luke 4. But Christ is the only way, the only way to peace with God and fellowship with him is through Christ. Christ is the truth. Christ is, is telling his disciples that he is truth. He is all truth. Now, it seems in our present cultural environment that there's no concept more under assault than the idea of truth. When did it start? You know, did it start with wokeism when two plus two doesn't equal four anymore? It was before that. Did it start with postmodernism? It was before that. Was it, was it with the Enlightenment? It was before that. Truth has been under assault ever since Satan asked Eve, did God actually say... Christ said that Satan is the father of lies. And Satan offers counterfeit truths. So how do you know it's true? You know, in our present environment, there seems to be no shortage of instances of cultural decay. You can look at the LGBT movement, look at the undefinition of morality, look at the collapse of marriage in the family. You look at so-called critical theory, and many of these issues have even affected the evangelical community. How do you know it's true? A few months ago, I was test driving a car. I had it for several days. But in the few days I had it, several things went haywire right about the same time. The turn signals quit working, the emergency signals quit working, the headlights quit working, the power windows quit working, the thing went out of its mind. What a crazy set of things to all go wrong at the same time. Would you believe that there was one component that failed? 
and it was responsible for all that. And that component, the culprit was a device called the footwell control module. And when it goes, it goes without warning so that the onboard computer really doesn't give you a heads up until it's too late. So I didn't keep the car. Um, the point is that all those broken, disparate things were caused by the same failed component. When we look at the world around us and see all these broken things, is it possible that there's a single failed component? The same root, and that root is the rejection of God's truth. The rejection of God's truth that's revealed to us in his, in his, in his word. Now, the warning to us as believers is that we've got to know God's truth. We have to be students of the word. And we can't delegate this responsibility to our pastors, our favorite bloggers. We have to be students of the word. When Christ was writing, when Paul was writing the Ephesian believers, he tells them that what's the purpose of our being equipped anyway? He says that the purpose of being equipped and built up is to maturity, quoting four of Ephesians 4 verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How do you know it's true? We have to be students of the word. There's an absolutely fantastic podcast called the Just Thinking Podcast. Just search for Just Thinking Podcast. It's great stuff. And their most recent episode is called A Biblical Theology of Climate Change. And in the portion I'll quote from, they're talking about the criticality of us as believers to be students of the word. And they say, open up the text of Scripture and identify what these things, that is, issues pertaining to the world around us, and make sure that we're standing on the firm foundation of Scripture rather than some new ideological framework that somebody wants us to stand on that's actually sinking sand. Continuing, the primary reason many professing believers don't do that is they don't believe Scripture. That's why ideas like the things that he mentions can seep into the church and take advantage of the church so easily we don't believe. We don't believe in the authority of Scripture. We don't believe in the veracity of Scripture. And because we don't believe those things, we don't read Scripture. And if we don't read Scripture, we don't know Scripture. And if we don't know Scripture, we don't know how to respond scripturally to these ideas. And he continues and says, I am convinced the number one threat to the church today, especially as it relates to the church not being more effectual in the world and impacting the culture, is biblical illiteracy. That is the Just Thinking Podcast, episode 124, A Biblical Theology of Climate Change. Jesus Christ is the Word. We need to know Jesus Christ. We need to know his word. He is the truth. Christ is the life. And he's telling his disciples that he is the source of all life. God created life. You know, Acts 3, Peter is addressing the, uh, the crowd and refers to Christ as the author of life. And that God raised Christ from the grave. And he's telling his disciples here that the reason that even death cannot separate Christ from his disciples is that Christ is life. Jesus Christ says in uh, John 10, 10, that he came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, Christ said that Satan was also a murderer from the beginning. And sin has brought death 
ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit about which they were warned the day that they did, they would die. And we see the results of their sin, the results of our sin, death ever since. But Christ, is he offers life. He can because he is life. And he emphasizes to Thomas in his, his response to Thomas with the claim that no man comes to the Father but by him. How can we otherwise? You know, we cannot come to God on our own. In our natural state, we're enemies of God. We're, uh, we're sinful rebels. And as sinners, we don't want anything to do with God anyway. And we are deserving of his wrath and eternity in hell. And that's the right payment for our sin. And so the only way that we can escape this punishment is to be forgiven. And the only basis for that is the salvation that Christ offers because of his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And if you are counted among those for whom he died, if you are one of his disciples, praise God for his kindness to you. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And, but, and because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, we can confidently put our trust in him. So this thing, the untroubled heart, is this a possible thing? Is the untroubled heart a possible thing? I think by God's grace, I'm certain it is. You know, consider God's faithfulness to you. Consider his fatherly care for you. Consider the eternity with him brought, bought by the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Despite the world's calls to fear... May your heart, may our hearts be able to say, it is well with my soul.